we turn this evening to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, which is simply another name for a tornado, of course, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal, and Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yeah, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elisha said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yeah, I know it. Hold ye your peace. Pause there, the sons of the prophets. And these were schools of the prophets. If they were sons of the prophets and schools of prophets, it did not mean they were, they were being trained to prophesy in the sense of foretelling future events. Uh, we commonly think of prophets that can foretell future events. But these were schools in northern Israel, mind you, that some God-fearing men had set up to teach young men God's word such as they had it, which would be primarily, of course, the books of Moses and the history of creation, the flood and Abraham and so on, even through Exodus and God's wonders in the, in the wilderness and so on, but also the laws of Moses so that they were instructing the young men so they could instruct others, that 7,000 who had not bowed the knee Baal. They were going to be in some ways ministry. This is some ways a seminary. So they would know what God's word was, the history of God in dealing with his people and then be able to bring the word in the interest of the preservation of truth yet in northern Israel. So it's called the school of the prophets. Now verse 6 And Elijah said unto Elisha Terry, I pray thee here where they Lord hath sent me to Jordan, and he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they two went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they two stood by Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they two went over on dry ground. It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass that they still went on and talked that Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. 
And he took hold of his own clothes and rinsed them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not sin. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Sin. And they sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, where he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? Thus far the reading of the record of the Holy Scriptures. Our text consists especially of verses 12, 13, and 14, beginning with the words, Elisha sought and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, and he saw him no more. Going on through verse 14, where we read that he takes the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? This is not the first time I have preached this text. But one time I recall very vividly. Thirty years ago I preached it to the congregation of faith where I was pastor and it was occasioned by the death of a mother of Israel the mother of seven children ages 3 through 17 she was taken from that family by a blood clot she died on a Sunday morning. The following Sunday, I picked up the scriptures and in some ways the mantle of Elijah and preached from this passage. A month ago, the husband of that mother, Linda Van Overloop, name was Jim, died after 30 years being a widow and raising that family, I can't say by himself, but in large measure, and then with the help of others as well. And when he died and passed in the glory, a good friend of myself and our family this text 
came to mind. But you understand, by the way, then, for the congregation of faith, we turn to this, this text in our bewilderment and our puzzlement and being overwhelmed and considered and made the cry, where is now the Lord God of Elijah? In the way of a lament, yes. But I must admit when I preached almost a challenge, Lord God, thou art a God of goodness, then show thyself as such. And we will prevail upon thee as Jacob grabbed hold of the knees of the angel and said, we will not let thee go until you bless us and assure us of thy goodness and thy mercy. Turn to this text again not simply as having been confronted by death, and by the way, I also lost my own brother just two months ago, fellow believer, and with whom I and we had so much in common. Not simply confronted by death, but I turn to this passage in light of what we as churches have experienced in the way of loss loss of certain members going their own willful way but families divided because some go their own willful way and others left behind in their own bewilderment and grief but the loss of ministers due to the charge of sin due to the resignation from office grief, you see, and loss, and a joy diminished, and the cry goes up, where is now the Lord God of Elijah? And you understand, I don't turn to this text with you this evening simply to raise the question, but to find the answer and to consider the answer because the answer is also in the text, isn't it? Who this Lord God of Elijah is and why we need him so desperately. But not only do we need him, beloved, why it is that we can rely on him and we can put our trust in him even though at times it seems and too often his way is in the sea, O oh Lord, and we cannot understand. But even as we cannot understand, we are to believe because I am Jehovah God. And what does that mean, beloved? Well, in the course of the sermon, especially in the second point, we're going to consider that to our encouragement and to the strengthening of our faith, even in 
difficult times and sometimes to the point of being all but overwhelmed. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Notice capital letters because, of course, that word Lord means Jehovah. Where is Jehovah, God of Elijah, as the text has it in the original? The occasion for the cry, and then to consider the God to whom we cry and why we cry to him with what hope and expectation, and then Jehovah's marvelous answer. The question posed by Elisha on the brink of Jordan, where is Jehovah, the God of Israel, is a cry from the heart, a bold cry. It has the flavor of a challenge, if you will, and I mean that from this point of view. Elisha is crying out, if thou art Jehovah God and the Jehovah God that you claim to be, then show thyself as such according to thy word and to thy promise and to whom thou hast revealed and said thou art. Honor, Jehovah God, thy word. We will hold thee, you see, to thy promise and to thy word. A bold cry. Reminding Jehovah God, really, of his own word. And now we in boldness, out of the sense of our own need, will hold thee to thy promises and thy word. And because thou hast claimed and declared thou art a God of thy word, we will prevail upon thee. As I said, Jacob of old, and hold thee by the knees until you answer. We will not let thee go. Show thyself. And when we say show thyself, we don't mean simply by thy power. Thy power too. But he shows his power to the ungodly. He sends winds of hurricane forces that sweep across, across a, a state like Florida and leaves a devastation behind. What power? That is not yet salvation. Display thy power, Jehovah God, but governed by thy mercy and thy promises and thy love. In other words, show thyself to be Jehovah's salvation, the Savior God. That's this cry you see. Show thyself to be the one who has not forgotten thy people and decided simply, enough is enough. I have borne with you long enough and now I take my leave of you. No, no, Jehovah God. Remember us in thy mercy and show thyself according to thy word. That's, you see, this cry in some and in a nutshell.
bold trot. It's occasioned by that astonishing and astounding manner in which Elijah was taken to glory. That was no ordinary departure. It wasn't simply a heart attack and a body falls to the ground and you're left with a body, a corpse behind to bury in the grave, was it? Rather, he was taken to heaven bodily, alive. This funnel cloud reaches down and sweeps him along with it, and he disappears. He takes leave of the earthly and the physical and the material, and he vanishes from before Elijah's very sight, and he enters into the heavenly and the spiritual bodily and alive. And Elisha is left behind on terra firma with his mouth hanging open, undoubtedly covered with dust, his clothes almost having been ripped off from him, marveling at what has just occurred. Beloved, what you have is these words occasioned by Elijah's ascension because that's what it was, an ascension up into heaven in a bodily form to be taken from the physical, earthly realm into the spiritual and the heavenly realm with the souls of the saints that are already there. That he was taken into the spiritual realm alive, of course, is underscored by Scripture in a couple of ways. It's underscored by the very passage that we read, as you recall, when 50 sons of the prophets observed from afar what they thought had happened. They did not see Elijah go to heaven bodily themselves, but as they stood on the west bank of the Jordan, and Elijah and Elisha had crossed over Jordan on dry ground and then walked off into the distance, into towards the, towards the wilderness and disappeared from sight, they saw funnel clouds come down. Maybe they saw heavens that was lowering and thunder clouds as well. And out of that storm in the horizon just in view from them and they saw this funnel cloud come, come down and they saw the thunder and the, they saw the lightning and heard the, the thunder and they realized that this funnel cloud, which has come down with a, with a roar, came down the very vicinity in which Elijah and Elisha were walking, and they wondered what had happened to the two and whether perhaps that great tornado swept them both away and deposited them as bodies someplace in the wilderness to be found later. They wait a while, and only Elisha returns. Where is Elijah, they ask, when he crosses over Jordan. And he tells them, of course, he has been taken by that tornado you saw, that whirlwind, into heaven alive. And they're skeptical. They found that hard to believe. We read that they saw it, as we read. We read here in the, in the past, they stood and viewed from afar, and having observed it, they say finally, we should go look for him. And 
they urged him until he was ashamed, and he finally said, send. And they send 50 young men, not just a few to go look over the vicinity. They send 50 young men to see whether or not, having been caught up with that storm, then deposited him maybe in a broken heap, and they will find a body yet in the wilderness, deposited from that funnel cloud. And they search in vain for three days, three days, a thorough, thorough search. They scour the area. And they find no body. And they return and say, we are convinced. He was taken up alive into glory. And Elijah said, I told you so. Why did you even question it? Bodily alive, he is in the heavenlies. So it's underscored, you see, by the passage itself. But you know your Bible history and you know that when Christ was on earth, nearing the time of his crucifixion, on the Mount of Transfiguration, two men appeared unto, unto Christ Jesus to encourage him as he faced the horror of the cross with the wrath of God that he would have to endure for the salvation of his people. And it's Moses and Elijah, if you recall your Bible history. The law and the prophets. Elijah, representing the, the prophets, who foretold the coming of the kingdom and of the king and the need for a righteous king for the, the kingdom and the law. Of course, Moses representing the, the law as that law having to do with the sacrifices and so on foreshadowed the atonement, the shedding of the blood, the need of the death of the Lamb of God for the salvation of his own and why he must Embrace that cross if his people, and they even in heaven, would be have, have the right to heaven and glory itself. And if you know anything about Moses, you will know that he died. But according to Jude 7, the angels contended. Michael with Satan contended over the body of Moses, and Michael takes the body of Moses into heaven, and there, in heaven, before the angels and the saints, he is resurrected. And so his body also was in heaven, but Elijah's as well. But that's the occasion for the words of Elisha, Elisha's, Elijah's ascension and vanishing bodily into the spiritual realm and in such a fashion that from every outward point of view, it overmatched even the ascension of Christ for its splendor and its majesty and its power. You recall the ascension of Christ Jesus. We'll consider that to some degree next Sunday morning. But before the astonished eyes of his disciples, as he's on a certain mountain, he simply floats upward into the air, defying the power of gravity itself, and vanishes into the clouds, goes from the earthly and the physical realm through a veil, as it were, into the heavenly and the spiritual. But Elijah vanishes with a roar, with this great tornado that comes with great force out of the, uh, out of the heavenlies. And there is the thunder and there is the lightning, and we read that there was in that tornado, that whirlwind, a chariot, and horsemen, that is horses, I should say, 
and harnessed evidently to the chariot, who knows, one team, two teams, three teams, six horses perhaps, who knows how many, but glowing as with a fire, radiant with glory, and you get the, the idea that even the horses as they, they pulled the chariot were breathing fire, something, a, a scene, you know, that is simply mind-boggling in its power, and it leaves Elisha on the earth below overwhelmed and simply stunned, as it were, for what he has, has witnessed in all of its power and its glory. And so Elijah departs with a roar. And that becomes the occasion for this word of Elijah. Now, as you consider how Elijah departed and what Elisha saw that as his teacher and his mentor was taken from him, you might think that Elisha picked himself up and he would have said, Hallelujah, my master, my Lord, my spiritual father who has taught me so many things concerning the wonders of God has been taken into glory. And sorrow and sighing flees away, and he has been spared the turmoil of the church and the labor with sinners. And I rejoice, and in the end, oh, happy day. But that's not how he responded. As Elijah has been taken from him, and as he's left alone on solid ground, there flows through him a surge of emotion and that has to do with grief and sorrow. It is shown to some extent in the cry that went up, where, O Lord God, art thou as the God of Elijah? Because that cry has, has, has with it the, the, the indication of a being alone, and, and bewildered and filled with a, a certain puzzlement, having been overwhelmed, as it were. But it's strengthened by the text that says, and he ripped his clothes. He cries out. He sees them no more, verse 12. And he takes hold of his clothing and rends them into pieces. Symbolic of what? I feel ripped in half. The departure of my beloved mentor, my spiritual father, is as a great running wound. I feel pain of heart to such an extent I can't even hardly put it in words. I rip my clothes to show my grief and my sorrow. It's interesting, you know, when death comes, to a loved one, and that loved one is one who was near, one with whom you had the joy of life, and is one who has brought so much to you in your life and enriched your life. And when that one loved one is taken, a person will express their sorrow in the terms of, I feel ripped in half, as though a part of me has parted, leaving behind this open, gaping 
wounds. And there may simply be the overwhelming fountain of tears. And later one will say, I can't even cry anymore. All my tears have been shed, and yet my heart is still, as it were, broken. Why? Why? You know what the world says? Because you really don't believe there's a heaven, do you? If you really believe there were a heaven and a spiritual realm, that's not how you respond to the death of a loved one. I thought you believed in heaven. Well, your loved one is now in glory, still alive. You ought to be happy. You ought to be singing the hallelujah chorus. You should be saying, oh, happy day, away from this turmoil, away from these tears. You should be rejoicing for them and with them, and here you are weeping. You really don't believe in heaven, do you? You deceive yourself. We don't deceive ourselves. We know that death is death, and it's the final going away, and that's why we weep and, and cry, because we know we'll never see them again. This is it. You pretend there's a heaven. If there were really a heaven, as you thought and you really believed it, you wouldn't have weeping and sorrow. It's an indication of your, really, your own skepticism and unbelief. Isn't that so? Is that so? Oh no, beloved, that's not so. If that's how it was, explain to me why Elisha has this grief and sorrow. Because there's no doubt in his mind that Elijah is in glory. He saw him with his own eyes depart and vanish into another realm. And though he knows that Elisha, Elijah is bodily alive in heaven, still this grief and this sorrow and being felt rent in half. Why? Indication of unbelief? No. It has to do with the separation of the bonds of love and it's that separation, temporary though it may be, yet for the duration of this life, that is the source of the sorrow and the grief, that farewell of one whom we love, who meant so much to us, not simply from a, an emotional and uh, physical point of, point of view, as with the unbelievers, and they grieve too because they've lost one from a physical and emotional point of view, but ours is deeper. It's physical. It's emotional, mental, and it's spiritual. And one who has been a gift of God to us from a spiritual point of view and brought Christ to us in various ways is gone and departed. No wonder there is grief and sorrow. That's an unbelief, beloved. That's an indication of a love. I would be far more concerned as a pastor if a loved one were taken and there were no tears. There was no sorrow. Just farewell, he or she is gone. That's all she meant to you? That's all he meant to you? I don't think there was very much love there at all and the sadness of farewell. But where the relationship is broken, be it for a time, there is a wound. 
There is a brokenness of heart. There is a separation of the fellowship that has meant so much to us. And God, beloved, does not reprove us when we have grief and sorrow over such a death. And so it is here with Elisha and the farewell to his his friend, his spiritual father, and the separation of the joy of life they had together as they walked and talked in this life. At the same time, there is a certain warning that must be raised, and that's this. Oh, it's not improper that we have grief and sorrow and sometimes of an overwhelming sort, as you can imagine, of a husband who, le- who loses a, a wife and a mother of seven children. You can barely go on the next day. Not improper, <coughs> but in the end, what becomes improper is if there is not the healing of the wound and the <coughs> grief and, as it were, someone simply ceases to live, ceases to go on in life and says, the Lord has dealt with me in such a harsh and severe manner that I'm not going to really live. I'm simply going to exist and I opt out of life and I'm simply going to be consumed with grief over the loss of the one who has been taken from me. One simply exists and one does not live, if you will, in the interest of the body of Christ and still being one who is of service to others and of use to others who yet live. Consider Elisha, beloved. He had this deep grief. So what did he do? Head for a juniper tree in that wilderness and sit under that juniper tree and say, The Lord has dealt heavily with me, and I have the mantle here, but I'm going on into the desert and forget about Israel. I'm simply going to feed in my grief, and I resign from office, and I'm done. I have no more to say. I've suffered my loss, and now let the Lord take care of his own. Does he? He has grief. He has sorrow. He has a wound, and oft times, beloved, that wound of sorrow and grief takes the time to heal, just as wounds do, especially when they are severe and deep. Nonetheless, he picks up that mantle, and he doesn't head to the wilderness in a juniper tree. He heads to the Jordan and to Israel, the Israel of God, with the prayer, with the prayer, really, that the Lord may use him yet in the place of Elijah, God so willing, the Jehovah God of Israel. And you understand, from that point of view, you have this cry, where now is the Lord God of Elijah? Remember, he has called and labeled Elijah as the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. That's an interesting designation of the prophet Elijah. Why would he label him as the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, my father, my father. Because, of course, all kings used their chariots and horsemen, and of what significance horsemen and chariots were back then. They were, of course, the power of a nation by which a king could defend his nation and preserve his people. 
and keep them safe from the enemies coming in and removing the nation from the face of the earth, or if not removing the nation from the face of the earth, at least coming down and bringing a people, any one of them, into slavery and into bondage and carrying them away. The chariots and the horsemen were used for the defense and the safety of a people, were they not? Preservation. And so Elijah here is labeled by Elisha as the chariot. Notice that not the chariots, one amongst many, as the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Because in the end, for God's Israel, the sons of Ahab were their chariots and their horsemen were of no use for their safety and their preservation in the ways of God, in the faith of God, and in salvation itself. They were useless. But there was one who was as the chariot, the chariot of the Lord and the horsemen thereof. And that was Elijah. Why? By his person? No. According to his office, as a prophet. Because in this one was the word of God, and it was a word of God with power, honored by the Holy Spirit, to save a people, to preserve them in truth, and in godliness as well, lest they be snared by the power of the evil one and be led into sin and in that kind of bondage. So you have this calling of Elijah as the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And now he's gone. Now, Lord, who is going to keep thy people in safety and preserve them and bring to them the power of the word that saves them? the enemy, but keeps them in the way of faith and godliness. Who will replace this Elijah, O Lord God, as the means whom you will, uh, will use? That's the question. And so the cry, as he stands there at the brink of Jordan, ready to enter once again into the promised land, into that which is the represents the kingdom of, of God and in which the church is found the remnant unto everlasting life. Show thyself, display thyself, O Lord God, yet as the God of our salvation. And the Lord answers, doesn't he? But the question before we get to that answer fully is, beloved, who is this? Jehovah God of Elijah, and why is he designated in that fashion? What does that tell us about Jehovah God that he is labeled here as the Jehovah God of Elijah? Well, if we will know who this Jehovah God is, all you have to do is consider various events and episodes from the history of Elijah. And I'm not going to spend here a long time this evening going over the history of Elijah, but I want to remind ourselves, let us remind ourselves of a few of incidents in which God revealed himself as Jehovah God, who is in the end the Jehovah God, who is the Savior God and the God of his Israel. In the first place, beloved, the God of Elijah is the electing God. He is the God of Election And election, beloved, is not simply a doctrine, and now that makes one a Calvinist. The doctrine of election, the truth of election, as God is the God of election, is a wonderful revelation of who God is in himself, because election has to do with love. 
And it's not just any love. It's a love that's rooted in eternity. Those whom he has loved from eternity. And having loved them from eternity, he has bound himself to that people to be faithful to them in his love, you see. And that's Jehovah God. You can read of that electing love, of course, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us into the adoption of children. From before the foundation of the world. That's the election, but it's God has bound himself, you see, bound himself to those whom he so loved, so loved with this love that he will not deny. And the God of Elijah is one who has expressed that love. Why was Elijah ministering to Israel in northern Israel in the first place? Because when he sat under his juniper tree, God sent him to Mount Horeb and heard the complaint of Elijah and said, Elijah, I have 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal, who are my own, whom I love. Now get your body back there and minister to them because I love them. But don't you see, that's the occasion for Elisha's cry. This Elijah through whom God ministered to those whom he loved, is gone. Gone in their need. And now, Lord God, who's going to minister to them, they're as children of a family without a mother, without a father. Who's going to take care of them? And he puts himself, you see, at the Lord's disposal, if thou wilt use me. But that's the occasion for the cry prevailing upon Jehovah God. Remember, thou art a God who has said, you have a people whom you love. Now, Lord God, how are you going to show that love? Thou hast the word. Now, Lord, show it. And if it is thy will, even use me to be the display and the power of that love. That's electing God, you see whom we put our trust in every distress, prevailing upon him in his love. But there's also this when we come to Elijah. Elijah it has to do as well with his power. Wonderful to have a love. One may love his children as a father, and yet we can't save them. We're powerless from that point of view. We pray the Lord may use us, but we can't save them ourselves. He's the God of power. You know how God displayed his power through Elijah. Through the storm and the whirlwind, but also by fire, didn't he? Consuming fire on Mount Carmel. In distinction from that so-called God Baal. Baal, hear us. Did Baal hear them? They cried in vain. Must be sleeping, must be on a trip or someplace. And he mocked and he ridiculed their foolishness. And then Jehovah God, the love, was just as Elijah prayed to him, answered by that fire that came down as a blast and consumed 
the sacrifices not only but the dust of the earth as well a god of this consuming fire this power beloved the power to make atonement of course but the power to destroy the enemy as well and he did that of course when those two captains of 50s came and were going to arrest him to silence him and the fire sweeps them away and Elijah which is to say the word of God in Israel continues to be served by the God of power power beloved to remove the enemy but to save a people and to work their salvation so the God of love who is the God of power almighty power but there's also this to this Jehovah God in all of his power beloved he can be ever so gentle and long-suffering to us beloved he showed that to Elijah as well remember he get to the to the Mount of Sinai where, where he went Mount Horeb he was under his juniper tree and he complained you know it's interesting that complaint of Elijah himself and his distress bordering almost on a despair under that juniper tree he said in in first kings 19 10 i have been very jealous for the lord god of hosts for the children of israel have forsaken thy covenant and so on and i only i am left and they take away my life who take it away what's important here is not only what he says i have been very jealous for the Lord God, but what he doesn't say. And so have you, Lord God. Because that's, by implication, the complaint. Lord, I have done my part. And I've labored with all of my energy, with all my zeal. And what have you produced through my word? Haven't saved a soul, as far as I can see. I'm the only one left. And you might think the Lord God said to a a mere man like that. Who in the world do you think you are to speak concerning myself and my wisdom and power and dismiss you from my presence? But he doesn't do that, does he? Could have. He sends him to the mount and all the displays of those power. And he's not in all the outward displays of the power. And then comes that gentle breeze, that quiet wind. And the Lord is in that wind. And he says, once again, What's on your mind, Elijah? Why are you here? And Elijah says the same words again. I have been jealous, Lord. I've labored with all my power. And what do I have to show for it? In other words, what have you produced? And the Lord says, Elijah, I work in a way you don't know. I have 7,000. I have been working, Elijah. I have been using you, whether you know it or not. Now, Put your hand over your mouth and get yourself back to my Israel so that I may continue to minister to them through you. But in that gentleness, beloved, hearing the complaint that so often we can raise in our grief and bearing with us as a father with his children in our weaknesses and in our needs and then picking us up again and sending us on our way. The God of Elijah, of love, of power, long-suffering as a father, and sometimes with a gentle beyond words.
but a God who always provides what we need in the end. Think of the widow of Zarephath. And the prophet Elijah goes into her house. And she has no more to eat. She's at her end and we're going to die. A Gentile. We sit here a Gentile. And what does the Lord God do for Elijah? Every morning, feeds of oil, a container of the flour, and enough food for the woman and her son and Elijah to eat. A picture of what? Thy mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The grace we need day by day by day as he provides it according to our need. That's the God of Elijah, you see. And this is the God upon whom Elisha will prevail and says, O Lord God of Elijah, where art thou? Show thyself as thou didst show thyself for El through Elijah to thy glory, but for the sake of thy people in their need, as thou knowest them, Lord, in their weakness and in their need. And the Lord answered him. He answers in this wonderful way. He answered really in two, two ways. There is the slapping of the water as Elijah takes that mantle and slaps the water. But there is the mantle. Notice, beloved, that when Elijah, Elisha cries, he doesn't say, where is Elisha or Elijah? He says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He's not interested in the man Elijah. Salvation of the church and preservation of God's people doesn't depend on any one man. I don't care if he's the Apostle Paul, John Calvin, or Herman Hoeksma. I don't care who he is. The Lord may use a man, but he doesn't need a man. He may supply his own men his own, his own way. He's the power. We need him. Where is the God of Elijah? Elijah is gone. We need the God of Elijah as Jehovah, the faithful one of promise, and so on. And he finds that mantle at his feet. Remember, Elijah is questioned by Elisha, what do you want of me? Well, I want a double portion of thy spirit. I don't want to be double the double the man you are, but the heir, the inherit what you have. What did Elijah have, beloved, that Israel needed? And Elisha would be willing to be used as the one whom Israel needed. The office. The office having to do with what? The word, the word of God, with its saving power. And when that mantle is at his feet, indicates he has left the word of God behind him, you see. I haven't taken from Israel my word. You yet have, will have my word in the office that I will give to you. We still have the mantle of Elijah, you know. We hold it in our hands. We can read it the word of God. He hasn't taken it from us. And it is for you. But not simply the word of God as such. Unbelievers can pick up the word of God and read it and it does nothing for them. It leaves them dead in their sins and under condemnation. It is not for them a power of salvation but of death. We need more than simply the word of God. We need it. What more do we need? 
the Holy Spirit belongs. The Holy Spirit who applies that word to heart and mind and understanding and soul. And for that, you see, the prophet, or I should say, Elisha stands at the brink of Jordan and he cries out, Where is Jehovah God of Elijah? I have the mantle, but Lord God is the spirit of power with the mantle, with the word that I have and the office. And he slaps the water, and the water divides. Maybe I should say the river stops flowing at that point, and he crosses over on dry ground. And the 50 on the other side say, Elisha has received the spirit. The spirit of Elijah is with him, and there is now a prophet in our midst who has the power of the word, which is the power of salvation to defend, preserve, to comfort, and encourage. All pointing in the end to who? I should say to whom? Who, beloved, comes ultimately to replace Elijah? Not simply Elisha though his name means God's salvation. But in the end, beloved, one called Jesus of Nazareth, Jehovah's salvation replaces Elijah, does he not, in the New Testament age. The Lord God of Jesus? No, Jesus as the Lord God himself who has come. And what's so striking about this Lord Jesus, beloved, is he also ascended up into heaven. Now, if you recall earlier in the sermon, I said it might have appeared as though Elijah went up with a greater power in the midst of that tornado. But that's only outward because Elijah had to be taken to heaven by that chariot and those horses in that tornado. He had to be carried into heaven. Christ, beloved, went up by his own power, by his own will. He simply floated up according to his own will, over the laws of something so fundamental as the law of gravity. The whole of creation was his servant, even gravity itself. And he vanishes from the earthly into the heavenly and the spiritual by his own will and power. But beloved, he's gone. The disciples stand there, and he's gone. What good is he in heaven? Is he of any value to us in heaven? And he's left us behind. You can answer that, can't you? He said to his disciples, I must depart in heaven, and it will be to your benefit that I depart into heaven, because having departed into heaven, I will pour out my good and holy spirit, and I will turn you into apostles, and I will enable some of you to write down my words, the words of salvation and the works of God, and I will use your word by the Spirit to work salvation and to save a people and to preserve them from the enemy and to keep them in the ways of godliness, in the ways of repentance and faith. That's Jehovah God of Elijah beloved. He's the God ultimately, of course, of Christ Jesus himself. And Elisha crosses over the Jordan. And it's as though he comes back from death crosses death itself back into the life of the kingdom, the ministry. 
and beloved represents Christ Jesus himself who still ministers to us and is willing to use weak means, mere men, to accomplish goodwill to those whom he so loves, whom we love, for whom we pray. And he answers those prayers and he saves his own. I'm just going to say this, beloved. That's what Brother Jim Denoverlope, who lost his wife, experienced too. Who can replace the mother of Israel? I'm all alone. And God works. A congregation of faith can testify of that, how God works in that family. And he has stalwart sons and a believing daughter. He is faithful to love. He is the God of Elijah who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the power unto everlasting life. And his ways, whether they appear to be so or not, are the ways of wisdom and salvation. Believe, beloved, and go forward. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Apply it to our hearts and minds. Glorify thyself, thy wisdom, and thy power, and thy grace. And be pleased to remain with thy word in our midst and to use weak means to accomplish good and everlasting things. In Jesus' name, amen.